Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about how to deal with the feeling that property is too expensive. You know, I have conversations every day with investors, of course, and, you know, a common theme lately and, and probably really uh, because of the, the, the media intensity around the issue uh, is that, you know, properties at all-time highs, where can it go from here? Um, and what I'd like to talk about in this podcast is, uh, you know, that property has really always seemed expensive. Uh, this is not anything new uh, and how to sort of deal with that. And I guess really, it's been almost 20 years since I started uh, my business, Pro Solution Private Clients. And really over that time, that has really been a, a very, very common theme, you know, that, and it can present, uh, that theme can present in many different ways, uh, including, you know, predictions of property market crashes, housing affordability crisis. Uh, a good one The Economist magazine does every few years is a comparison of Australian property prices to the rest of the world. You know, there's all this sort of rhetoric that um, that the media comes out. It's obviously mostly clickbait. Uh, but, you know, the noise is often uh, quite unhelpful for uh, property buyers, particularly investors. But the reality is that property has always been expensive and, and this is nothing new it's probably not going to change. Uh, and so what you've got to do is learn to live with it and despite all the rhetoric, continue to make uh, prudent financial decisions. Uh, so let me share a, a, a brief story, a, a property that I purchased, uh, in fact, uh, back in December 2006. Uh, and I had engaged a buyer's agent, R Richard Wakelin, at the time to go and select and purchase an investment-grade property for, for me and my then wife. He ended up buying a single-fronted Victorian cottage on a relatively small block of land, 146 square metres, in the blue-chip suburb of Paran in Melbourne. Uh, and we paid uh, 723000 uh, for that single-fronted two-bedroom Victorian cottage, which was a record price uh, at that time in that street. Uh, something of which uh, really didn't make me feel uh, fantastic about paying a record price for a particular asset. In fact, it made me feel a little bit sick, to be honest. Uh, but I trusted the fact that buying a, a really good asset um, in a, a great area is always going to work out uh, longer term. Uh, now, I unfortunately separated from my first wife in 2012, so as part of that process, uh, we had to dispose of that asset. So I don't own it anymore, but it most recently sold in uh, August 2019, so pre-COVID, um, pre uh, for $1.362 million. Uh, so uh, $723,000 I, I paid for it. Uh, most recent sale, $1.3, call it $1.4 million. Uh, that property would be worth probably somewhere close to $1.5 million today. Uh, now, when you look at the, the growth really between 2006 and uh, 2019 when it last sold, uh, it's only annualised growth of 5.1%, which actually isn't that great. Uh, but if you have a look at the longer term performance of this asset uh, really since 1990, uh, it's just a shy under, touch under uh, 8% compounding over that period of time, so 30 year period of time. Uh, so really a, a very good asset. The point I'm trying to make is that when I purchased that asset, uh, you know, it was ridiculous. It was too expensive. It felt too expensive, I should say. 
um, and it concerned me. Uh, but now looking back at the purchase price, uh, you know, I should have bought two or three. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it is always, it's almost always the case when it comes to property. Now, of course, the concern is when you buy into a market at its peak, uh, you know, the, the, the concern is that there's all downside and no upside. You know, that once if the market crashes, prices fall, how much further can they go? Whereas if you buy into the share market, for example, after it's fallen 40%, you know, you pretty much got probably mostly upside and, and no downside. So, of course, we can talk about sort of theoretical examples of how the property market can crash. Uh, but instead of uh, worrying about theory, let's look at practically what happens. And I think the biggest and most compelling fact for me uh, is that government policies have always supported property prices. Now, of course, we can argue the merits of that, you know, whether in fact that is uh, the right thing for a government to do, uh, whether they should step in if, you know, property prices are under pressure, those sorts of things. And in fact, I think there's a uh, a very strong case to mount that, in fact, government should keep out of uh, markets like the property market and um, uh, and and let markets do its thing, uh, which could include people losing money sometimes, uh, and to step in and, and save people from losing money uh, really isn't how a free market should operate. But the reality is that uh, the government has always done that. And there's been several examples of this. Of course, negative gearing is uh, is one that was uh, introduced in 1985-86 uh, uh, to uh, give a, a tax break to people that invest in property. Um, uh, when the GFC occurred, uh, the Rudd government doubled the first home owner boost uh, from seven to fourteen thousand dollars to sort of underpin uh, the demand for property uh, during that sort of GFC period. Uh, and then most recently, uh, the example was obviously the federal government working with the banks uh, to negotiate loan repayment pauses. So, you know, the industry turned around through the pandemic and said, OK, you, you don't need to um, repay your loans to, to deal with any sort of foreclosure or reduce the risk of foreclosure and, and those sorts of things. But the reality is that there's been heaps of examples over the years where as soon as the property market gets a, a few jitters, uh, you know, the, the government uh, will se- uh, step in. Now, they've got an incentive to do that, of course, uh, because we know that falling home values are really bad for the economy. Uh, you know, if the price of your dwelling is falling, it makes you feel very uncomfortable. Consumer confidence falls. As a result, consumer spending falls. And that really deteriorates the whole economy. So there are wide-reaching impacts or other reasons why the why the government wants to uh, make sure everyone feels financially safe and secure, particularly in regards to their home value. Uh, secondly, the, we've got four banks that uh, hold more than 80% market share in Australia, uh, and the strength of those banks uh, are really dependent on a, a strong and robust uh, property market. And uh, it's not difficult to Im- imagine that the banks have some pretty significant lobbying power um, in Canberra. Now, I'm not suggesting that these vested interests are, in fact, healthy for what should be a, a very free market, um, just merely pointing out that they exist. So let's not have an argument about whether it's right or wrong. Uh, let's deal with realities. And the reality is there's always going to be a strong incentive for the government to make sure that the property market is well supported. 
And as long as that's the case, you know, a, a price crash or a, a major correction is therefore quite unlikely. Uh, so then let's talk about then the theoretics of a property market crash. So uh, really, if if prices are to fall, let's say 30%, for example, using some of the predictions that the banks came out with uh, in the middle of last year, there needs to be widespread selling. Now, that can only happen if the housing market is in oversupply. So that is that there's uh, more properties than necessary for us to occupy. If the, if the market is in um, equilibrium, so that is that there's uh, enough properties for people to occupy, but not too many, and also not too few, although too few um, uh, would, would um, underpin prices further, then a property market crash is very unlikely because, you know, I might turn around and sell my home, but if I've got nowhere to live, you know, I'm going to be pretty reluctant in order to do that. So if you had a look at what happened to US uh, property prices in 2008, the market in, in many locations started from a point of oversupply. You know, as a reminder during that time, uh, credit criteria and uh, loan terms were very loose. Anyone was getting a loan. Um, you know, people, there were stories of people um, borrowing $3 million on a salary of $60,000, for example. It was just pretty crazy. Uh, and people were told prices never, never fall. Uh, don't worry about it. Just borrow the money. Go buy the houses. Uh, and even though they sat there vacant, you know, because the, they didn't, couldn't find tenants for them, uh, you know, they just banked on rising property prices. Now, of course, uh, when the GFC occurred, you know, that all unwound. Um, and the problem is that because they started from a, a point of oversupply, of course, then property prices correct. So the key thing then to look at is uh, supply demand. How many properties do we have? How many people do we have to occupy them? Uh, because as long as that's in equilibrium, a, a widespread sale of property is very, very unlikely to uh, occur. Now, that's the theoretics behind a, a property market crash. Let's look at sort of history, if you like. Uh, and you'll see on the website, and there's a link obviously in the show notes, uh, the chart that I prepared uh, that really looks at property prices in uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane uh, since 1980, so you know, 41 years worth of data. Uh, and I had a look at you know how often do we get a negative return uh, in any one particular year uh, and what's the average negative return. You know, so we can sort of test to some extent the volatility of prices. Uh, now, Sydney is the most volatile. Uh, you should expect a negative return every sort of four-ish years, and the average negative return is 5.5%. But when you have a look at the long-term uh, average growth rate, uh, this is just median house price, by the way, it's not investment-grade property. Uh, since 1980, it's about 7.7%. Uh, so pretty good return, uh, not too bad of volatility, but uh, relatively high compared to other markets. Uh, Melbourne's in the middle, uh, you should expect a negative return uh, every seven years or so. The average negative returns lower than Sydney, negative uh, 4.3%. Uh, and the long-term growth rate is the best of the three uh, capital city markets at 8.1% over the last 40 years. Uh, and Brisbane is far less volatile, uh, a negative return of uh, every 10 or so years, but the negative return is about 3.1% on average. Uh, and long-term growth rate of 7.1% uh, over that same period of time. Uh, so what we can see is that, sure, property doesn't always rise, 
Um, there are negative returns, particularly in that Sydney market. Uh, but really, it's that long-term performance that's most important. And when that does have a negative year, we're not talking about massive negative years. Uh, you know, the share market can lose 30 or 20 or 30% in a particular year, uh, whereas the property market, it it's, tends to be less than 5%, which really isn't, uh, in the long run, that big a deal. Of course, it's important to remind us that this is just median house price data um, and really doesn't inform us to what the volatility rate of investment grade property uh, looks like. Um, but I would uh, mount a case to say that investment grade property is likely to be less volatile uh, than the median, just because it tends to be supported by stronger fundamentals. And on average, the owners of those properties, because they're higher priced, tend to have a stronger financial position uh, and they're more likely to sort of ride out, uh, you know, tougher economic times. Now, of course, I'm talking about the property market like it's one homogenous market, but of course we know it's not that different locations and different types of properties behave completely differently. Uh, so therefore, of course, it's possible that whilst we might not see a property market crash, so a widespread crash, uh, it's not inconceivable and uh, in fact it's quite possible that certain segments of a property market could crash. And I think mining towns were a really good example. Uh, in 2016, we saw prices of property in mining towns, which had just become, you know, unsupportable, just ridiculous, uh, that they, they dropped 70% in that year. So, you know, uh, property market crashes widespread, probably unlikely, uh, um, uh, but certainly in some geographical segments within markets, depending on how silly their valuations become, uh, it starts to become more likely. And that means if you're buying a property with really strong fundamentals, that is an investment grade property, a crash in that market is even less likely uh, again. Now, of course, there's always going to be doomsdayers. There's uh, really always property sceptics uh, out there. And I estimate probably every year, uh, over the last 20 years, there's been uh, one high-profile person predicting a property market crash. Uh, it's great. It makes for great clickbait. It's always going to happen. I don't think it's ever going to change. You know, I think there are always going to be people out there predicting that's going to happen. But really, it'd be well advised to uh, ignore that sort of attention-grabbing headlines and uh, really just follow an evidence-based approach. The other thing you can do to uh, help put current property values in perspective is to really consider longer term outcomes. And the problem is it's quite mentally difficult to get your head around how powerful compounding capital growth can be. So, you know, if you get 10% this year, then 10% the next, and then the next, the next, the next, you know, how that really compounds over time. Uh, and so what I did is uh, I just uh, um, uh, produced a, a simple table that looked at, you know, compounding capital growth, 7, 8, 9, 10%, over periods of 10, 20, 30, 40 years to sort of demonstrate to some degree um, mathematically just how powerful it is. And so if we look at an example, I invest a million dollars for the next 10 years and receive a 9% compounding return. Uh, in 10 years' time, my investment is worth 2.4 times more than what it is today, so $2.4 million. That's a pretty good return. If I retain that investment for the next 40 years and continue to receive 9% per annum, that investment is then worth 31.4 times its original value or $31.4 million. Um, that's a, con a considerable amount more than what I achieved in that first uh, 10 years. 
And that's what I find it, it's, it's difficult to conceptualize these numbers. Uh, and then sometimes when you even, when you do, you think, well, how's that property ever going to be worth $5 million? Uh, yes, but the reality is that that's how markets work. Um, no one w- would have ever thought that we would have uh, companies that exceeded uh, two or three trillion dollars in the U.S. Uh, in in 2021. But you know what? It's happened. This is where we are. Um, uh, people couldn't have conceived that uh, even maybe 10 years ago. So therefore, the the best way to mitigate the risk of buying into a overheated market is to level up on quality, is to buy a property that has the highest probability of of generating the highest return. And even a a difference uh, of a return of, say, 9 versus 7% compounding over a 40-year return makes a massive difference. Uh, If you get 9%, you've earned twice the return than what you would have got at 7%. So a relatively small increase in growth rates over very long periods of time has a substantial impact on future value. And that's really where the value lies in. If I'm buying an asset today, what will this asset be worth in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years? Uh, And therefore, to make that original purchase price look immaterial, which it will do if you do buy the right asset and hold it for long term. So just to sum up then, property has always seemed expensive. I know that's felt the same way. Almost every property I have uh, purchased has almost given me indigestion. Uh, it's always probably going to be that way. The chances of a property market crash, uh, particularly if you're buying investment-grade property, uh, are pretty slim uh, unless the market is in oversupply. Uh, the government uh, tends to always be there to save the day. Again, whether that's right or wrong, uh, is a is a question for another day, uh, and the best way to mitigate risk in in terms of buying into a market that's trading at its peak uh, is to level up on quality and buy something that's going to generate the highest amount of capital growth uh, that your budget will afford. And as a staunch proponent of evidence based investing, it means you need to apply the rules that. Um, uh, determine whether a uh, property is in, in investment grade or not. Uh, that, is, that is a strong land value component, um, a strong history of past performance and um, some scarcity value, uh, those three attributes. But also uh, because property is part art and part science, uh, the attributes will get you the science bit, but the art bit is really the experience, the local area knowledge. Uh, it's critical to get uh, some assistance there from a, an experienced professional and trustworthy uh, buyer's agent. So that's it for me for this week. Until next week, bye for now.